Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. (laughs) Or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. Hello, you're listening to Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental film review podcast with me, Dan, despondently resigned that my dog did, in fact, eat my copy of Stephen King's Dreamcatcher in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) Oh no, you'll never read it now. (laughs) (laughs) And me, Conrad, not knowing what day of the week it is in Cambridge, UK. Yeah, very true. In this podcast, we discuss forgotten fantastical films, sci-fi fantasy and horror, because wouldn't it be nice to just jump into an intergalactic spaceship and travel the cosmos right now? Mm. Conrad, how are you today? I'm pretty good, yeah. It would be nice to fly away, wouldn't it, as long as you could socially distance in the spaceship. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you still in lockdown over there? Still in lockdown, yeah. Uh, Trying to read more, but uh, (laughs) very, very shocked (laughs) to come out into the lounge the other day and see my book just strewn all over the floor uh, in various pieces. But uh, luckily, he only ate the the front cover in sort of the first fifth of the book, so Ah. I'd read past that so I can still finish the book. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, that's good, because Dreamcatcher is in the oubliette and Mm. we want to watch it at some point, but you want to finish the book first. Yes, yes, it's my (laughs) uh, resolution for the year. (laughs) I'm almost halfway, so it's, uh, it's looking kind of good. How are you? How are you faring? in these times. I used to look forward to our Skype sessions, but I have to say now I'm getting pretty tired of video conferencing on the whole. (laughs) Nothing personal. But yeah, I'm working from home, so I spend all day every day in meetings on Skype and Zoom and Microsoft Teams and yeah, Mm. the whole video conferencing thing is getting old fast. (laughs) Wow, wow. I miss being around people. Oh yeah. Speaking about people, anyone talking to us, Conrad? <laughs> yes, surprisingly, we heard from Neil Marshall, the director of Doomsday. Oh, wow. Yeah, subject of the film we covered two episodes ago. Mm. And he said, nice to see Doomsday getting some attention in this crazy time. I've never made any excuses for the blatant homages this movie pays to my favourite 80s movies. But yeah, what things like Grindhouse and Stranger Things are applauded for, we got derided for. All that matters to me is that John Carpenter gave me his approval. We're just ahead of our time, I guess. So Mm, that's good. Yeah, any thumbs up from uh, Carpenter is always a good thing. Well, yes, especially seeing as he sued Guy Pearce's movie for being too similar. So, yeah, I think Neil Marshall did well to get the uh, thumbs right. up from John there. <laughs> <laughs> he also got in touch when I tweeted the bunny explosion scene on Easter Sunday oh, yeah. with I the caption, <laughs> with the caption, Happy Easter from Doomsday. <laughs> And he replied, to be very clear here, no bunny was harmed in the making of this movie. Yes. <laughs> we also heard from Serge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hey, Serge. Hello, Serge. He rendered his opinion on Bird with a Crystal Plumage and reassuringly came up with the same conclusion as us, which is, I guess Bird with a Crystal Plumage proves there is, in fact, a real difference between watchable and coherent. Because I definitely sat there and watched watched the whole damn movie, but I couldn't begin to tell you what was going on throughout the entire second act. Oh, wow. (laughs) So it wasn't just me having a stroke or something. (laughs) Right. Okay. So what are we doing today, Conrad? Well, let me just wander over to that old oubliette and throw it open to find out. Oh, 
weird. It's all silvery in here. Right. Oh, there's a robot eye over there. I'll ask it for the movie. Can we have today's movie, please? Compliance. Thank you. Hurry there, yeah. Conrad, where have you been? It's been eight years. Wow, you look really old. Yes, well, I'm the same age as you, Conrad. <laughs> Cheeky bugger. <laughs> and what do we have today? We have Flight of the Navigator, a 1986 science fiction adventure film directed by Randall Kleiser, written by Mark H. Baker, Michael Burton and Matt McManus, starring Joey Kramer, Cliff DeYoung, Veronica Cartwright, Matt Adler, a very young Sarah Jessica Parker, and Pee Wee Herman oh. as the voice of the alien. <laughs> Is this going to be a bit of childhood nostalgia, Conrad? Mm, could be. So what's it about? So, in this movie, David Freeman has a lot to contend with for a 12-year-old Floridian in 1978. His eight-year-old brother is always getting on his nerves. He can't pluck up the courage to speak to the girl he's been spying on with his telescope and his dog can't learn how to catch a frisbee. But when he falls into a ravine one night and passes out, he wakes up to discover that eight years have passed, his parents have moved and his younger brother is now 16 and says phrases like like totally rad. It turns out David was abducted by a UFO that looks like a silver gillian chocolate and is driven by a robot that sounds suspiciously like Pee Wee Herman. This Trimaxian drone ship, Max for short, just so happens to have been collected by NASA after it collided with a pylon and lost all of its sat-nav data. David and Max are reunited at a top-secret lab and go on the run, but will the 12-year-old living in an age without Google Maps be able to navigate his way back home? Will Max be able to return David to his own time before the evil authorities catch them? Find out after the break! <laughs> Our special guest today cut his teeth producing a weekly cable access series called Burrito Vision while in high school, but graduated to directing one of the most fascinating and suspenseful thrillers in recent years, The Clove Hitch Killer. He's also the reason I am now a vegan. We're oh. massively excited to welcome back Duncan Skiles. Yeah. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Hello. I think of those accomplishments you listed, I am most proud of you being a vegan. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's nearly a year now. Wow. Yeah. Oh. You got onto it shortly before we first met? It was watching your videos. Mm. So for those of you out there, listeners who don't know, Duncan also has a YouTube channel with his wife, Liz, called So You're Dating a Vegan, mm -hmm. which I guess is So You're Married to a Vegan now. <laughs> <laughs> so You're Raising a Vegan. Yeah. <laughs> so I watched loads of those episodes as I was preparing for our first podcast together and got hooked and started thinking to myself, hmm, how difficult would it be for me to make the switch because I'm kind of lactose intolerant anyway and mm. I find meat kind of disgusting. So I thought I'd try it and I haven't looked back since. Amazing. Well, you look great. Oh, thank you. You're full of vitality. Yeah. Still, yes. More than ever. <laughs> Are you a big fan of nutritional yeast? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I put that stuff on everything. You put Nutri on everything? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not even a vegan, but I love that stuff. I eat it from the packet. I, it's the best kept secret in the vegan world. I don't even understand why it's exclusive to vegans. Probably because it's called nutritional yeast and that sounds disgusting. Yeah, they need to rebrand that. <laughs> if somebody can figure out how to market that right. Mm -hmm. Instant millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of best kept secrets, as always, we are here to discuss a film that could be described as a best kept secret, or at least not as well known as other icons of the 80s. It is Flight of the Navigator. Mm -hmm. It's got a cult following. Wasn't a huge hit when it first came out. Duncan, you chose the film, and I was wondering if you could kick us off by talking about why you chose it, what your history is with this movie. Yeah, this 
this one came out when I was five years old. So it was really more of a movie that my sister was into. She's a little bit older than I am. And I remember her being really into it and having it on VHS and watching it a bunch. Mm. So there's just little pieces and images that stuck with me. So I was very curious to revisit it to see how much of it would come back mm. and determine if it was actually a good movie because it does have a pretty devoted fan base to this day. Yeah, yeah. it's really a beneficiary of the VHS movement, I think. That's where it found its audience. I don't think yeah. it was a huge hit on first theatrical release. Dan, you didn't see it at all, did you? No. I've never seen this movie. I watched it for the first time for the podcast. But while watching it with my wife, she 10 minutes in, she said, uh, yeah, I've seen this. Yeah. <laughs> Which for me is quite shocking because I feel like I've seen every obscure movie and she's seen only big blockbusters, but no, she'd seen it. Yeah. <laughs> Probably on VHS from the local video store. Yeah. yeah. It's like a weird niche of obscurity because it is a Disney movie. It is. It is, yeah, but not in so much as they initiated it. I think it's a case where they bought it, distributed it. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think it was more of an independent production and it kind of fits right in the middle of that high school science series. So you had films like Weird Science, Real Genius, My Science Project, Daryl, Explorers, all around 1985, 86. Yeah. And here comes Light of the Navigator with the boy who holds all the star charts in the universe in his head and can fly his own spaceship around Florida. Right. That's a fun premise. It is a fun premise. So for both of you, there would be quite a lot of childhood nostalgia attached to this? Certainly for me, yes. Yeah. So I, you'll be surprised to hear this, Duncan, but I was bullied as a child at school. Aww. And I had this sort of collection of VHS movies that I would go to on a Sunday night. And Aww. they had a very common theme when I look back. And they're all kids escaping into a fantasy world or into a spaceship <laughs> or flying. <laughs> Let's see if we can figure out what else was in that collection. Maybe uh, Explorers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably uh, E.T. See, E.T. I never got on with. Really? Because he left at the end. E.T. left at the end. <laughs> what else is there? Um, Return to Oz was there. Return to Oz? Mm. I haven't seen that one, but that's Frank Oz directed. No, wait. Uh, Walter Murch. Yeah, Walter yeah. Murch. Yeah, the sound designer and the editor for Francis Coppola. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Is that movie as weird as I've heard? Yeah. It is, yeah. It's uh. deliciously dark. Very dark. We really enjoyed it. We've done an episode on it. How about uh, Labyrinth? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's where I learned the word oubliette. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm very sorry to hear you had to endure that. It's no fun. No. Kids are jerks. But it gave me a deep love of a collection of films that I, I think a lot of people have grown up loving as well. Yeah. I was also surprised because the director, Randall Gleiser, he's directed all of my childhood movies that I've watched. So Grease and Big Top Pee Wee and White Fang and Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm really surprised this one, I completely missed this film as a child. Yeah. Well, he's not the type of director that you seek out to watch all of his movies necessarily because they're all so varied. Oh, mm. yes, that's very true. I mean, he's, he's also directed Blue Lagoon. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. No, I haven't either, but its reputation precedes it. Oh, yes, definitely does. What, why, is it like softcore or something? Pretty much. Ah. It's a lot of nudity. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so Big Top Pee-wee versus Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and Honey, I Blew Up the Kid versus Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Mm. Did you prefer those sequels to the originals? No, obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. But at least he directed Grease rather than Grease 2. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I've never seen Grease 2, but I've seen Grease 1 once, and I thought it was great. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Watching Grease as a kid, I just thought the 70s was the 50s. Because <laughs> I just, I couldn't fathom a movie coming out in that time being about a different time. I just thought all old movies were set at the time they were released. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about, and movies like that have always confused me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a big 50s comeback in the 70s. There yeah, was. and in the 80s. Yeah. I guess it's just a generational thing. So you have something like Back to the Future and Grease, which was very late in the 70s, whereby they cunningly create a movie that appeals to youngsters at the time, but also their parents, because it has that right. 20, 30 year nostalgia gap in there. Sure. That, like Stranger Things now. Right. That's what puzzled 
puzzled me about this movie because the time gap that they've chosen is eight years. Right. So our main character is flown away from Earth at light speed and therefore when he's returned, he's the same sort of four, well, four hours older, but essentially the same age mm. and everybody else has aged eight years. But eight years seems like such a weird gap to go for. It just in terms of capitalizing on the nostalgia value, right. usually eight years ago just kind of seems naff. Right. Of well, I wonder about time's contraction and expansion as we go further into the 21st century, because you have such distinct differences between every decade of the 20th century. Yeah. And it feels like it kind of evened out around 2000. Mm. Like there is a distinct difference between 1986 and 1978 in my mind. And I wonder how distinct it was for them as well. I mean, they played it up. Like yeah. when he woke up in the 80s, they started saying like, rad, dude. I mean, they were playing <laughs> oh, yeah. all the fish out of the water stuff. I feel like they could have gone further with the difference between the 70s and 80s because it mm. didn't look a huge amount different, No, uh, no. to be honest. Even when he goes back to his childhood home and it's now occupied by elderly people, I guess, uh, <laughs> it doesn't look like an 80s home. His bedroom has been turned into a lounge. Yeah, yeah. Like a study. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's... Complete with Muzak and a guy called Larry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't look all that different. I mean, the thing that's really interesting is how different the parents look because having been deprived of their child... Yeah, they don't look so hot. Yeah, yeah. No, they really look terrible. Yeah. <laughs> they look like they've been in quarantine for two months. Yeah, they yeah. look pretty scary. <laughs> Pasty and Veronica Cartwright's hair's all pulled back from her face so she looks haggard. And I think Clifty Young, they made him wear a hairpiece for the younger version and then took it away so that his widow's peak was more pronounced oh. in the older version. and Yeah. But Veronica Cartwright's really funny about this in interviews. She talks about the fact that she thought it was a bit extreme. She said, you know, wouldn't I have perked up a bit by now? I do have another kid to look after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like the part where the dad asked the mom how to open a candy wrapper. <laughs> Little piece of business. I bet he improv that just at the end of the take. I, I got an idea. Can I try it, Randall? Okay, here I go. <laughs> I liked it. I love the whole first third, first half of this movie. The whole premise is very unsettling. And him coming back to the house and his parents not being there and then meeting his parents and they're older. I thought his acting was so great throughout all that. Mm. And then meeting his brother, who's now older than him. I love the actor that played his older brother. Yeah, Matt Adler. Very effective, and, and, and I could see how that alone is enough to seep into your skin as a kid. That very premise of waking up and your life is gone, your parents have moved on, is pretty powerful. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the eight-year gap there really, it means a lot to a kid yeah. as you get older. 10 years doesn't feel like a lot because, you know. <laughs> what have I done with my life, Conrad, in the last 10 years? <laughs> yeah, as a kid, when you're 12 years old, eight years seems like a really long time. It is a long time. Yes, yeah, like 80% of your life. So, uh, yeah, as you get older, time goes faster and you look at kids and say, wow, hasn't he grown? Whereas when you're a kid, you're rolling your eyes and thinking, God, this car ride's gone on forever and yeah. all that kind of thing. Mm, so yeah, eight years exactly. and, your, and your brother suddenly being 16 is a bit of a shock. Yeah. yeah. I also liked it that when he does flash forward eight years, there's no big fanfare about mm. it. There's no flashing lights or some weird visuals or sparkly music or anything. It's just a straight cut to the next scene. That was one of my favorite parts. I, I wrote that down too. Yeah, it was, it was. It's almost a jump cut. Yeah. It cuts from like a medium shot to a slightly wider medium shot. Mm. Yeah. It's super cool. And so when David does go home, you don't expect it. It just seems like normal, but then everything has changed. Yeah. So it almost felt like you're watching the Twilight Zone or something. Totally. Mm -hmm. It's just very surreal. Yeah, it is really disturbing. Mm -hmm. That's why it surprises me that it's a Walt Disney movie. I mean, apart from there being the occasional swear words, I bastard and shit mm -hmm. in there, which is surprising. But it's much harder hitting than I would normally expect in a Disney movie. It's quite mm -hmm. a traumatic experience that he goes through. And because Joey Kramer is so sincere and sweet 
and all of his tears are genuine. They're obviously genuine. Mm. They're not glycerin being squirted into his face. It's yeah. very moving, and it really invests you in him and his situation. I mean, one thing I really like is how they quite gently insert you into his point of view by having first-person shots in the movie mm-hmm. during those sequences, like when he's in the police station. Those low-angle close-ups on the two of them sort of whispering to each other. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. See, this is something that the director mentions on the commentary track that he's using a different lens for his point of view than he is for the reverse angle. I was wondering if you could explain the difference because I mm-hmm. I have no idea what that means. Well, on Joey's point of view, they're using a, a telephoto lens so that we're further away, but we're tighter in. Uh-huh. So psychologically, it's like what he's watching and listening to is what we're very intent on. Mm. And then when we're looking at him, the camera is wider and more objective. Right. Uh-huh. So it creates the relationship of objective and subjective. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, it, like, it isolates the subject because it throws everything out of focus as well. Sure. Yeah. They do it with the sound design too of like they're whispering, but it's turned up in the mix. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, just changing topics a little bit, uh, there is one thing I wanted to talk about. It might just be me personally, but I thought there could have been more time spent in... 1978. Yeah, because I kind of forgot what his parents look like. (laughs) So so when he was reunited, I was still trying to remember their faces because I don't know, maybe it's also because I'd seen this only for the first time. Yeah. I wanted more sort of establishing the 70s. And so when it jumps forward to the 80s, it's starkly contrasted, but it didn't feel hugely different to me. Listen, man, the 70s were all about dog frisbee catching contests. (laughs) And that's all you need to know. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, it was not very specific. It was like a sign that said dog frisbee catching 1978. Yes. They keep having people say, gee, it sure is 1978 around here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and they're listening to Grease on the radio as they pull up to their house. Yeah, and I think they have Casey Kasem or somebody on the radio (laughs) being like, can't wait to celebrate July 4th, 1978. Yeah. Some uncharitable reviewer suggests that the reason the film is so nostalgic about 1978 is because that's the year that Randall Kleiser last had a hit movie, which I thought was (laughs) cruel. Oh, my God. That makes sense. It's a little bit harsh. Yeah, that's actually a road to go down because he could be stuck in 1978 psychologically and this movie (laughs) reverberates with him. (laughs) Because at the end of the movie, the conclusion is, this isn't my home. I need to go back to 1978. Yeah. Yeah. And he makes a tough decision at the end because his choices are be a lab rat for the rest of his life or risk death to return to 1978. Yeah. And he chooses the latter, which is pretty ballsy. (laughs) Very. It's 1978 or die. Yeah, it's either stay and be tested on or be vaporized. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) Did you guys feel the stakes of all of that? No. Of the final third of the movie? No. And is that bad? Or, I mean, does that hurt the film? That it kind of coasts yeah literally and narratively i feel like the film reached a point where suddenly it just got so goofy uh-huh. that i didn't care anymore oh. <laughs> so, i mean i guess when max the spaceship uh, his voice becomes actually he just sounds like Pee Wee herman mm. that i just thought oh wow there's no stakes in this movie they're gonna be fine yeah <laughs> but up until that point i was very gripped and I felt like there was a lot of danger and there was a lot of threat. Yeah. And I hated the NASA people and I wanted him to escape. But after right. Max becomes Pee Wee Herman, <laughs> I just thought, wow, this is just too goofy. And then they spend an exorbitant amount of time just flying around the globe getting lost. Right. For not a lot of reason. And I feel like that could have been just all cut out. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I kind of tune out when Pee Wee enters the stage as well. Well, but I'm curious to know what Conrad thinks. Yeah. For me, 
it was always one of my childhood favourites. And actually, that middle portion of the movie, the sort of road movie, where they're like a bickering couple over a map, mm. uh, you know, the turnpike would have been faster. Mm. Yeah. As a kid, I loved all of that stuff, right. with the menagerie of aliens in the wall. and Compliance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> that's the flight of the navigator. That's yeah. the fun part of the movie. Oh. And then you have this stakes-free finale where he just goes back and gives his family a hug and everything's fine that just feels a bit perfunctory but i was fine with it mm -hmm. it is very disney it is threat free mm -hmm. the nasa guys aren't really sort of a huge threat they're more like concerned adults yeah mm. they're not really wanting to do anything evil right they're not on the same level as peter coyote and et i wouldn't say no which i don't mind i sometimes prefer smooth sailing to manufactured conflict. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember one of my favorite movie-going experiences was uh, The World's Fastest Indian. Ah. That movie about Anthony Hopkins setting a world record on a motorcycle. Started mm. in New Zealand and then yeah. it went to Utah, I think. But I remember like it had this vibe to it where there would be antagonists who would be against him but only momentarily and then they were kind of friends and there and they were mm. like good luck buddy yeah that's more refreshing sometimes than just constant conflict in movies sometimes people being nice to each other and supporting each other is nice to see in movies and yeah like every movie feels kind of the same after a certain point of like the rising tension to the climax and then the second act low point and all that stuff and sometimes it's nice to see you know like let's chill in the spaceship for a while yeah but Pee Wee Herman is annoying so oh. I love Pee Wee's Big Adventure okay. I do not like the spaceship character turning into Pee Wee Herman I'm much more into it when it has its regular voice yeah I mean I watched it with my wife and she said to me uh, I wish he would go back to his regular voice <laughs> the interior of the spaceship was cool though oh amazing yeah, yeah. The, I mean the spaceship design in general is out of this world yeah I was really impressed watching it in 2020 in 1986 film with that amount of CGI that I didn't even know existed mm. back in 1986. I think it was the first time yeah. that they did a lot of that stuff. It was the first time they had reflective texture mapping yeah. on a computer-generated object. It's amazing. The reflective surface of the spaceship showed the environment that was around it. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. amazing. And also the reflections in the environments as well. As it was flying over water, you could see it reflected in the water. Oh. Um, it was flying through the Golden Gate Bridge. You could see the shadow of it on the bridge. It's, uh -huh. it's phenomenal work. Yeah. And even the practical effects of the ship floating are pretty incredible. Yeah. That was awesome. Because you, it's on a crane and you can't see it. Yeah. It was sold really well. Yeah. So they had it suspended from a crane. Crane and and then that that's how they got it to look like it was floating. Yeah, because you didn't see any wires or anything. No, there are no wires. They tried wires, but it started penduluming like crazy. So instead, mm. they had a specially constructed sixty foot crane, and they're using some of the oldest tricks in the book to hide the crane. The same sort of techniques Fritz Lang was using in Metropolis. So there's wow. so in some shots, there's a mirror in front of the camera at a forty five degree angle, reflecting a different piece of the sky. What? To cover up the crane. <laughs> what? That's <laughs> mind-boggling. Where did you learn this stuff? <laughs> this is all on the uh, the special edition that's available in the UK. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. Is it like a featurette or is it in the booklet? Uh, both. Oh, yeah. man. Wow, that is cool. Do you know how they did all that sort of... Some of the green... I mean, I guess it would have been blue screen back then. But some of those kind of composited blue screen stuff is just phenomenal. Like, you can't see the edges at all. No. It's really impressive. And I think it's a lot to do with the fact that the elements are being generated digitally. Mm. Of course, they're not being composited together digitally, but they are being generated digitally and then... I think burned onto the celluloid with a laser. What? Which is really impressive. So cool. Yeah, because I kind of forgot that, you know, back then they didn't have digital film. So they actually had to physically yeah. Yeah. apply it onto a negative. Yeah. That's amazing. Burn it back out again. Yeah. It's not like they can paint it onto the negative digitally. They create like an outline of it. That's the first step of the process. Then, then they have two separate strips, right? They have one that's got the object and another that's got the black outline and it's that outline that defines where the object is allowed to go onto the final negative yeah. it's called a a mat 
Uh-huh. Yeah, a traveling yeah. mat. Yeah, right. But I think because the mat itself is being generated digitally and it matches the ship perfectly, it's it's pixel perfect. So I don't think you can see a mat fringe, right. which is where you see this black outline where the pieces of film aren't quite lining up. So if you see a film like Firefox, which came out just a few years earlier, all of the flying sequences with the models have matte fringes everywhere it's really obvious whereas in this one you can't see them except in the model shots and there are a few model shots and they really stand out Mm. but they were trying to save money because all the cgi shots were costing a fortune and they were very difficult to render like a second would take three days (laughs) or something it was pretty terrifying i think for the shot where he travels back in time through a completely cgi environment they had to book some time on a cray supercomputer to get that rendered out because otherwise he said that we'd still be waiting now for for that shot to come out. Whereas now you could do it on your phone in three seconds. It's just crazy. Do a green screen on your Zoom conference. I was impressed with the background plates too, you know, like those flying shots over the ocean and over landscapes and stuff. It's, I guess it's sped up, but it's incredibly steady. Probably a, like a camera on a gimbal from a helicopter or something like that. Yeah, brand new one, which was really stable. All of the flying shots are great, which I think is part of the reason why I love that whole middle portion that Dan, you were sort of de-invested in and bored. But uh-huh. <laughs> the whole flight of the navigator thing, them zooming around those landscapes. And the first part where he says, take me 20 miles from here, and they just go straight up into space. Yeah. <laughs> I just love all that. And take us somewhere, they'll never find us. And he goes to the bottom of the ocean. All that stuff, I just really fired my imagination as a kid. I thought it was great. Mm. Yeah. How about the scene where they go to Tokyo and it's just like six Asians they found on the street. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, six Asians in Florida and of course they all have cameras because it's, yeah, it's not good. (laughs) (laughs) I laughed at that. Some of the shots I found kind of found them a bit ugly, I guess. Mm. So uh, there's one scene where it's kind of the climax of the film and David is having to decide whether to stay in 1986 or go back to 1978. And he decides to go, he gets in the ship and they're flying off. And because the spaceship doesn't have any lights and it's a nighttime scene, it's a very dull-looking shot of his parents Uh in shadow, complete (laughs) shadow. (laughs) I mean, I know it's purely because, you know, it's not E.T., Close Encounters of the Third Kind type of UFO. It's not got flashing lights, but I did find, yeah, some of the shots were a bit... It doesn't look as sort of magnificent as it should look. Right. (laughs) Yeah, they might have been bumping up against... Time and budgets. I mean, I I wonder how consciously they were ripping off Spielberg. Yeah, very much so. I I mean, Spielberg was solicited for his views on the spaceship designs. I know that for sure. Oh, really? Yeah. I did think the ship kind of reminded me of one of those fragrance bottles. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It just looked looked like a cologne or something. But yeah, I did think there were some pacing issues in this film that could have been ironed out a lot better. Yeah, some of the shots as well. It's it's one of those films where it's a lot of close-ups. Uh-huh. And it didn't have that sort of larger-than-life Spielberg look to it. Yeah. And even when they went different places, it was a lot of close-ups. Yeah. It wasn't the huge, wide shot or, I don't know, like the Peter Jackson thing where there's this huge swooping shot over right. the entire uh, environment. There wasn't anything like that. Mm. When you kind of think of it, I guess it would have been from the point of view of David and him being a 12-year-old boy having everything close, uh-huh. I guess, his perspective. Yeah. yeah, it's just not as dynamic as Spielberg. I don't know if it was a uh, narrative or a psychological choice. I know some of it was for sure, like we were talking about with the long lenses Mm. particularly with a movie with so many practical effects like this i guess the camera has to be relatively static a lot yeah sure but it's just shot kind of plainly at times and it gets kind of sloppy 
It does. In the last third. I mean, did you notice his hair changing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come back for a reshoot and put a wig on type of change? Yeah. Oh, right. Even as a kid, I noticed that. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't notice. You didn't notice that? I never notice wigs. I don't know what it is. I just don't see hair, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you will as the lockdown continues because we're all going to get ridiculously big hair. <laughs> yeah, they wanted to sort of change the ending a little bit or make it clearer so there are various shots towards the end of the movie where all of a sudden david's hair gets huge where he's wearing a wig yeah and then it goes back to his original hair yeah right <laughs> and it's because um joey kramer as soon as the movie finished he rather unwisely cut his hair and dyed it blonde because he was a skater kid ah so oh man did you guys read about what happened to joey kramer no no oh he uh sad story he had a lot of problems with drugs and getting into trouble with the law later in life. Oh. And in 2016, he was arrested for robbing a bank what? in British Columbia, Canada. Wow. Yeah, his mugshot was not looking good, but I've looked up his Facebook profile and it looks like he's doing a lot better. He's got headshots, he's doing the convention circuit. Oh. Yeah, he seems like he's got a really positive thing going on now. So I'm happy to hear that. Oh, wow. wow. Robbing a bank? Dude robbed a bank. That's insane. <laughs> oh, wow. But he's doing better now. Yeah, he is. I mean, there's an interview with him on the this uh, new Blu-ray, and uh, he looks great. He looks really happy, and he's really enthusiastic and warm about the movie. Good. Yeah. Well, maybe the two years in rehab fix him up. Yeah, maybe yeah, it's all maybe. turned around for him. He was so good in the first half of the movie. I mean, he really anchored the film. And it kind of relates to what my main issue is with the film is I can't tell what it's about mm. emotionally at the end. Mm. There's not like a clear emotional arc. No. There's a metaphor there for navigating your own life because he's kind of anchorless in the beginning. Yeah. But it's a mixed bag of 12-year-old problems. He doesn't know how to talk to girls. He's annoyed by his little brother. Those are all kind of normal things. But then when he's walking through the woods, he literally says, I just don't know what to do with my life anymore. Yeah. <laughs> he, he says that to his dog. And I feel like somebody gave that note at some point of like, you got to make it clear that he's lost in some way. Right. Because the whole emotional payoff should be that he commandeers this spaceship and he's terrified. And then he learns that if he just goes along with it intuitively, he can be the navigator. Yeah. I think that's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. But that just doesn't quite hit, ah. you know? And I, I want to feel as moved at the ending of the movie as I did at the halfway point when it's that close-up of him and the tears are streaming out of his face mm. and he's freaking out. Yeah. Um, and I think they tried to do that with his relationship with Pee Wee Herman Computer, which is somewhat effective when they say goodbye. Yeah. But, you know, they just met each other like 15 minutes ago. Yeah, yeah you're right. And I'm not quite sure what the motivation at the end is either because... It seems like he wants to break out of NASA to go home. Then he starts hearing Pee Wee Herman in his head and decides to go to the spaceship instead. Then he uses the spaceship to go home. And then when he gets there, he decides to travel back in time to 1978 instead. So there are all these competing motivations going on. And I'm not quite clear that he knows what he's doing right. or that the film knows what it's doing right. in the third act. I think you're completely right. I didn't even really think about it watching this film. Mm. But there isn't an arc at all. And I still go back to the fact that they didn't spend enough time in 1978. They needed to establish the characters. I thought his parents were kind of cardboard characters to me. They didn't have enough warmth uh -huh. and love towards them that I wanted. And so the end for me was a bit, I don't know, I didn't feel a lot. Uh, I felt there was much more warmth with him and his brother, which was yeah. really nice. Um, the actor that played his older brother was great. Yeah, he's good. And also... Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, her character had a lot of warmth. She was fun. Yeah. A good injection of quirkiness with her mismatch earrings, uh, as well as kindness and helping, yeah. uh, sort of nudging him in the right direction. But then she just disappeared pretty much. She turns up at the family home and then is captured. And <laughs> I don't know, I expected more from her to help out, but nothing. I kind of expected him to see the girl that he likes in the future, being older and being disappointed. And then when he goes back in time, he sees her and he asks her out or something like that. But right. yeah. kind of a missed opportunity there as well. So I don't know. Yeah, there were a lot of things that could have been tied up that weren't. Yeah. yeah. Maybe his relationship 
relationship with Carolyn. Maybe that's supposed to be him getting used to talking to girls, mm. but definitely you think so. But she just seems like a mother figure almost, yeah, like a big sister because of the age difference. I don't know. I'm feeling some inappropriate romantic tension when she says that he's cute. Yeah, ah, uh, I mean that. True. Yeah, that smile. Yeah, was a little creepy. Yeah, <laughs> I know exactly the one that you mean. <laughs> well, it's it's like a big situation. It is yeah. totally. In her mind, she's like, technically, you're 20 years old, sort of. <laughs> Or you should be 20 years old right now, so this is kind of okay. Yeah. <laughs> also, what was the implication when he closed the curtain and the two guys who were supposed to be watching him were like, oh, this kid. They give like a knowing look between each other. Like, oh, he's just doing 12-year-old boy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He's shirtless too. So yeah, that's a bit icky. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't actually get that implication. That's... Uh... Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Oh, it's just Duncan of my dirty minds then. <laughs> no. It's a director of the film's Dirty Mind. Yeah. I mean, this guy directed Blue Lagoon. Yeah. yeah. Wow. He's a freak. <laughs> you know what? The more I think about it, the more offensive this movie gets. Yeah. <laughs> Cancel yeah. Flight of the Navigator. <laughs> yeah, I'm amazed it's on Disney+. Plus. They objected to Splash. Oh, yeah. Didn't they paint out Daryl Hannah's butt? <laughs> they did. They gave her, like, this furry butt. What? <laughs> oh, a furry? Oh. Yeah. So... Because she's running along the beach and she's got long hair as the mermaid, but it doesn't quite cover her ass crack. So instead of extending her hair and modeling it, you know, throughout the length, they've just like copied and pasted bits of it all over her ass. Oh, no. So now she has like oh. this furry ass. It just looks like she has a real <laughs> hygiene problem. It's oh, no. Now it's time for random trivia. So, Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia did you wake up to eight years after you went to sleep? <laughs> well, uh, this film, uh, I read somewhere that uh, the prop for the, for the spaceship, the hull, was refurbished and is now the topper of a drink station in Tomorrowland at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. Oh. <laughs> That would be nice to sip on a milkshake on. <laughs> Seems like a rather ignominious end for <laughs> a famous spaceship, really, doesn't it? Yeah, Aww. yeah, it's kind of the equivalent of uh, the sideshow attraction at Big Al's <laughs> diner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, I think that would be better. Yeah, the little bit of trivia that I read was that the uh, Al's Gator City was actually on Burt Reynolds' ranch. That's where that was shot. Oh, right, good old Burt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good old Burt Reynolds. God rest him. And that's our trivia. Yay. Music by Alan Silvestri. thought it was pretty cool. I love the music. Alan Silvestri did uh, Back to the Future mm -hmm. just the year before. He did Predator. He's one of the greats. He's incredible in this. I felt like there were many scenes in this movie that the music was definitely larger than life than the actual uh -huh. scene themselves. <laughs> yeah, despite being all synth, it was like pretty lush. Yeah, it's a synclavia score, isn't it? Is it? What's a synclavia? It's a very early sampling synthesizer. So instead of creating purely electronic analog sounds through oscillators and circuits and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. it's based on samples of real acoustic instruments that it's playing back at different pitches depending on which key you press. Yes. And a lot of composers would use that to try to recreate the sound of a real orchestra and it always sounded really fake and naff. Right, sort of TV right. movie of the week, cheap score that you'd get in the 90s. And I hate that. But what I like about Alan Silvestri is he always used to use it to create interesting textures. He didn't try to create the sound of an orchestra at all. Yeah. I mean, I especially love that motif that keeps repeating throughout the film, that sound. The mystery flutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it really kind of anchored the sort of tone of the film. Mm -hmm. What about the montages of frisbees with 80s drums oh my and God. fake synthesized <laughs> guitars? Is that like what came on when Ralph was yeah. scooting through the compound? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't not have a sequence like that in an 80s movie. <laughs> I know, I know. It would be rejected by the MPAA. <laughs> Sorry, this is not suitable for 1980s audiences. Yeah. They won't know what to make of it without a montage yeah. to cheesy rock music. Back to the cutting room. Yeah. 
I mean, 80s drums. It's so synonymous of that decade. Yeah. And always drenched in reverb too. Who puts reverb on drums? <laughs> Everybody in the 1980s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I thought the score was fantastic for this film. There were lots of tense moments and it had breathing room. There were moments of no score and there were themes. It was everything you could ever want from a score. Yeah. The sound design was pretty good too. I remember the part where he gets his face scanned when he's uploading the uh-huh. star maps. It had some kind of vocal element. Yeah. Yeah, I thought there was a lot of good work that went into this. Although this isn't their fault, but I'm pretty sure that the sound effect of the door opening when he's in the NASA security room was also used in the video game Doom. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The mechanized doors, the sliding doors just cracked me up, though, because they were clearly wooden doors. Yes. Uh, So (laughs) I don't know how you mechanize wooden door. And Ralph's little side flap was like two pieces of cardboard. Yeah. A couple more moments I loved. When Davy gets on the spaceship and there's a security breach, the security guy has to consult a binder oh, yes. for what to do. He yeah. opens a red binder, yeah. quickly goes to the protocol. And then there's a guy in the background just frantically switching all the switches. Yeah. Well, this is the thing that there's only like three switches. So why do you need to do a checklist for this and just hover over each one? Also, this is your job, pal. Like this is the one responsibility you have. You should be looking at the instruction manual for doing the one thing that you're supposed to do in the event something like this. Yeah, it's not great, is it? It doesn't speak well of NASA. Uh, it's Maybe it's fun for the kids. Yeah, I suppose so. Do you think this movie is ripe for a reboot or a remake? There have been discussions about it. Mm. Yeah, I've seen that it's like started and stalled a couple times. Mm. And last, it was with Neil Blomkamp's production company. Oh, yeah. wow. I think it would be quite interesting to do a really dark take on it. Uh-huh. Maybe turn it into a Netflix series and really mine the drama of the family situation because mm. that could go into some pretty interesting places. Yeah. It's almost like an episode of Black Mirror. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. One thing I was going to say, Dan, when you were talking about the lack of epic shots, I almost felt like there were quite a few moments at the beginning of the movie where they were kind of taking the piss out of that kind of shot. Like, there's the scene, well, obviously the frisbee at the beginning you're supposed to maybe think is a flying saucer, although you're not really convinced at all, and then a dog comes into frame in slow motion and catches it. Yeah, But you have the water tank that David sees late at night when he's walking through the woods. That was good. But you also have the Goodyear blimp going over the Frisbee competition. Mm -hmm. That was weird. And you have that wonderful shot where everybody stops and just sort of looks up in awe as this enormous shadow looms over them and then you cut and it's the Goodyear blimp. So it just seemed as though there were lots of fake outs where they were saying, you're expecting it to be a sci-fi movie? Ah, gotcha. Not yet. Yeah. (laughs) I did love that actually. That was pretty cool. Yeah. One of my favorite shots was later after he's come back and we go back to the family because David's on the phone and his brother is outside playing frisbee with the dog and his brother tosses the frisbee, it pans with the frisbee, the dog catches it and then the camera lands on the mom Mm. at the door saying, your brother's on the phone. Mm -hmm. It's such an incidental moment. It's like an in-between moment. Sure. But they nailed this really cool shot for it. But that's the arc of the whole movie. The problem set up at the beginning of the movie is that Bruiser can't catch a frisbee. Oh, yeah. And then at the end, he can. Yes. You're supposed to be in tears watching that moment. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he does say at the beginning of the movie, I'm going to train you so hard. Yeah. Because the dog just doesn't want to catch. Yeah, it's such a humiliating moment for him at that frisbee competition. I currently have a dog that does not catch anything. And I'm trying so hard to train him. I I get food. I get a piece of chicken. I'm like, come on, got to catch this. And I just end up throwing food at his face. And he just (laughs) sits there taking it. Sounds like you're due for a time-traveling outer space adventure, my friend. Yep. (laughs) Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. So listeners, you must all be strapped into your Chrome Navigator pilot seats and ready for the Mobley Awards to be thrust upon you. It's where we present our favourite NASA investigating parts of the film in a number of Pee Wee Herman level goofy categories. Best quote! My favourite quote was when they've been shot 
vertically upwards into space, into the spaceship, and David's just shocked at what, what's just happened, and Max says, you requested this distance, and then David replies, I didn't mean straight up, I meant along the ground. And then Max's response is just, oh. <laughs> it's just like, oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> Well, you could see where there would be a logic problem there. Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) Specifics. Uh, Mine came from a younger, older brother, Jeff, when they're trying to arrange for a visual sign that uh, David can home in on so they can find the house. And he says, don't worry, if I have to set fire to the house, you'll find it. He's a cool character, actually, the older brother. I loved him. I, I like the callback to the fireworks as well. It was nice. Yeah, that was good. I'm sure there's like a better quote somewhere, but I'm going to go with the dad saying, hey, do you know how to open one of these? When he's referring to a candy wrapper. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Most Aces moment. I'm just going to put it out there. The music. The 80s drums was the most 80s part of this film. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I will say the the music video. Oh, of course. <laughs> By Blancmange. Yeah. I can just imagine them just showing up with boxes and boxes of props and costumes and going, okay, let's just use all of this. Yeah, I also brought a cooked turkey. Let's do something with that. I got it. We'll take it out of this oven and throw it on the ground. <laughs> Classic Blancmange. <laughs> oh, I love it. Correct. For me, the most 80s thing about this movie is the cute robot sidekick with a shit acronym for a name. One of these things where they think of the name first and then just try and come up with something that kind of spells out the letters. So Ralph is Robotic Assistant Labor Facilitator. Mm. I mean, come on. What does that even mean? (laughs) Best hair or costume? Costume. I mean, I'm going to take Sarah Jessica Parker Ah, with the big frizzy blonde hair and the (laughs) colorful big earrings. And I think she was probably wearing like a belt to cinch in her lab coat look. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was looking pretty fly. Yeah, she was the flyest lab assistant at NASA for sure. Yeah, (laughs) NASA security, a separate division for NASA. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, for me, it has to be Matt Adler as teenage Jeffrey with his tight blue jeans, so tight you can tell his religion, mm-hmm. his massively oversized inside-out printed shirt with geometric shapes on it, his enormous tortoiseshell glasses, and a mullet that seems to have a sort of mini man bun, like rat tail thing at the nape yeah, of his neck. It's pretty 80s. I love it. Yeah, that was exactly what I wrote as well. His shirts, though. <laughs> Man, those are some cool shirts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Favorite scene. I think that my favorite scene was when he's in the hospital and uh, he's come back. This is like shortly after everybody's getting over the shock. He's kind of like collecting information about what's happening and they're reassuring him that everything's going to be okay because somebody's going to be there 24 hours a day. And he's just so affected. And it it lives on that close-up of him. And I, I just really felt what he was feeling. And I was the most moved by that scene. Yes. Yeah, yeah I mean, me too. That scene where he's running around uh, his house and he can't find his parents and he just breaks down on, on the stairs and then, yeah, transitioning to the hospital. That whole sequence was just, yeah, very, very effective. Yeah. It's really good physical and verbal acting. I mean, he's yes. great in all of those scenes. Mine is the scenes with the brother. Mm. I think they're really touching. They're really well played by yeah. both of them. and. And it's such an interesting situation that they're in. Yeah. And I believe their relationship too. It's really good. My favorite scene, because I just love the spaceship so much, was uh, the first (laughs) time that David encounters the spaceship. So Mm -hmm. it's just amazing special effects. But also, yeah, uh, Max is a great character. Um, Paul Rubin voices him when he's not goofy Pee Wee Herman. He voices him really well. And the sort of... Uh, interaction between, an, I guess, an alien life form to a human and the whole design of the spaceship, how the stairs just melts out of it. 
kind of liquefies and then hardens as these hovering stairs and the inside of the spaceship being all chrome and almost like hieroglyphics all over the place. Yeah. If I wish I'd seen that scene as a kid, I would have been just like awestrucken. Dude, that was the one scene that stuck with me the most. When I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because it was, it's so tactile because it transitions from the graphics to the real steps. So Mm. it feels, it's a very successful transition. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was something that left an impression on me for sure. The liquid steps. Most cliched sci-fi moment. I would say the, the, the psychiatrist scene. You know, mm. every time some kid gets some super power or telekinesis or whatever, they're always in a room with a psychiatrist. And what what are those machines with the needles that go back and forth? What what, what are they called? <laughs> because they, there's always one of those, and there's so like a spectrometer. A, yeah, what, yeah, I guess one of those. Yeah, and there's always a two-way mirror yeah. with a whole bunch of scientists in the back room with billions of computers and screens and yeah <laughs> I would say related to that it's it's the idea of the the government so aggressively the guys in hazmat suits mm. coming after him it's a sci-fi of that time cliche because mm. oh, sure. it's just so familiar from E.T. yes and I'm sure a couple other movies yes uh, also it was there in the last movie we talked about the blob Oh, yeah, mm. of course. <laughs> yeah. Same kind of suits. Yeah, with snacks in the backpack. I remember that. <laughs> How about you, Conrad? Yeah, for me, I've said it before. I'll probably end up saying it many times again. It's the nighttime in the woods, so it's blue and there are mm. god rays coming through uh, the trees every yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite special effect. It's the UFO. It's got to be the UFO, right? <laughs> it's the spaceship. It's the best effect in the whole film. The inside, the outside, the morphing of how it changes shape. and oh, It's amazing. Yeah, It is cool. I mean, I especially like even because the inside of the ship is reflective, they were actually not only projecting what he can see outside at the front, like it's a view screen. Hmm. They're also projecting it into the capsule so it's reflecting on the walls around him too so there were two projectors running uh-huh. and it does it brings the whole scenes alive it makes you believe that he's really going to these places on these adventures so it's, yeah yeah it's a beautiful effect all of it yes i like the liquid stairs oh. and i think that that's really effective because it transitions so well into the practical steps and i also would give a very close runner-up to the eyeball oh yeah. the giant eyeball <laughs> yeah i mean the the liquid stairs it's, that's ambitious, really. That's so yeah. ambitious for the time. But they pulled it off. Mm. I, I'm glad I watched this movie because I thought for a long time that The Abyss was the first to do that kind of fluid right. type of computer animation in a mainstream movie. This is uh-huh. a good three years before. Two or three years. Mm. Yeah. Mm. This is five years before Terminator 2. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Best sound effect. My favorite sound effect. It's very small. It's when they're punching the buttons on Ralph. It's that kind of really old school beep sound mm-hmm. where every beep sounds like it's out of tune. Yeah. <laughs> or it's, or it's going around a tune. It's like... It's just this ridiculous sound. I love it. What about you, Conrad? Uh, for me, it's the Puck Marin, the little alien that David takes home and his oh. brother's totally cool with it. <laughs> Yeah, Sissy hasn't got like a squeaky voice or a high voice. He's got this really gruff little croaky voice, but it's fairly hollow and tinny sounding like he's small. Yeah, I really like that. I thought it was cool. Worked well. How about you, Duncan? The um, voodoo Haitian. Oh, yeah. Serpent in the rainbow with the eyeball. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of Yoko Ono, primal scream type stuff. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Great pairing. Most funniest scene. Mine was um, Big Al's Gator City scene. Mm. I just love the suburbanite family that think that the UFO is some sort of roadside attraction Uh that Big Al has put out there. Big Al's line reading on... Because David's come out to phone his family and then get back in and takes off. Mm. And uh, Big Al's just been stood there catatonic ever since he arrived (laughs) on his forecourt. And the the dads, the suburbanite dads, stood next to him and can't get him to engage in conversation. And Big Al just says, he just said he wanted to phone home. (laughs) 
Mm. The, the line itself is pretty obvious, but it's just the dad's reaction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even he seems to be doubting whether that's true or not, or whether he's just pulling his leg. Yeah, I like it. Sure. Make me giggle. <laughs> and you, Dan? Uh, I mean, there are two funny scenes. I've already mentioned them. The, the O response from Max... And also, yeah, the obviously faux sliding doors at the NASA facility. The wooden doors that <laughs> could never be automated at all. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Duncan? Um, I'll probably go with uh, the culture clash between the 80s and the 70s between Sarah Jessica Parker and David. Ah, yeah. Mm. I thought it was pretty snappy <laughs> and fun. Because there's so much about this movie that you could do to that movie, you know, like mm. it's so dated and of its time. And it's interesting to see them looking back at a previous time as if they're in the present moment, which they were at the time. It's always the present moment, but it's hard to imagine the present moment being 1986. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that concludes the Moobly Awards. We are back for the final verdict. Should Flight of the Navigator be free to travel vertically upwards at 3,500 kilometers per hour and spread throughout the galaxy to be praised by all life forms? Or should it be crammed into a morphing chrome spaceship and sent back to 1978, never to be talked about again? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Duncan, you are our guest today. Final thoughts. Well, there is another factor to consider here in that this is such a, an important movie for so many people of our generation. So if I were to cast it into oblivion, I would take away something dear to them, mm-hmm. including you. Yeah. I would remove a title from your uh, safe haven library of VHS tapes. <laughs> and in that way, I would be no better than the bullies who tormented you on the school grounds. So it's very true. I have some problems with the movie. I think that there's more going for it than working against it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna save this one. Mm. Yeah. I would agree in terms of it being a sort of a pioneer in terms of like special effects. And, yeah, and an interesting premise as well. I think it had a lot of intent, and whether it executed that to its full extent was you know, questionable. Mm. And I obviously have problems with the pacing and characterizations. But yeah, overall, if I'd seen this as a kid, I would have loved this movie. And I I would recommend this to any kid, (laughs) even now. I think it's it's pretty magical. I would definitely free this film. Yeah, I would agree. It's still a film that holds up for me as an adult watching it. And I can easily imagine that for people like me who grew up watching it would want to show it to their kids too. Mm -hmm. And I I agree that there are problems with it in terms of its motivation, even what's happening in the third act of the movie Mm. or what the stakes are. There doesn't seem to be a threat, but I think there's nothing wrong with a movie that doesn't have a lot of threat to it. That's just a good time. And Mm -hmm. it may not linger long in the memory for a discerning adult now, but for kids, it's a blast. and, Mm And there's a lot of visual inventiveness going on here that, and some groundbreaking stuff. So I think it deserves to be saved still. So mm. I would set it free too. Yay. Yeah. See you later, Navigator. Yay. Congratulations, Flight of the Navigator. <laughs> You're saved. Fly free. <laughs> Fly free. If they ever brought out a Flight of the Navigator cologne, I would definitely buy it. If it was shaped like that spaceship. <laughs> that was shaped like a spaceship? Yeah. And it comes with a collectible Puck Marin? And Cliff de Young would have to ask his wife how to open it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Duncan, it's been fantastic having you on the show again. And I'm sure our listeners have loved hearing your thoughts on this movie. Have you got any projects coming up that you'd like to plug? Plug my. I don't have anything to plug. I'm writing something. And there's my YouTube channel. I just released a video that took a couple weeks to edit and it's 30 minutes long, but I think it's pretty good. It's very naturalistic documentary style, which I enjoy doing on the channel. And I'm going to be making more videos uh, because 
now is a good time to do it because I'm in quarantine and everybody mm. else is too. So it's a literal captive audience. So I'm going to be making a video about pancakes next Amazing. because that's what the world yeah. needs. I need that. Oh, well, yeah. I'll look forward to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And if you are wanting to look forward to our future episodes, you can follow us on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Movie Oubliette. Yes, and you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We do love to hear from you. Yes, and if you want to be loved even more by us, you can become a Patreon patron for a dollar. You can suggest a movie to be reviewed in our future episodes, or for $5, you can get access to all of this fantastic bonus stuff that you never knew you wanted. Yeah, including behind-the-scenes videos, extended interviews with our guests, and all sorts of fun. Yes, indeed. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on whichever podcast platform you're consuming us on, because it really helps us out. Yeah, yes, it really does. And Conrad, what are we going to be navigating towards next time? Uh-huh. Well, next time we'll be watching a dark thriller film from 1979 called Winter Kills. I've never heard of this. No, me neither. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting. This was chosen by our special guest, so we'll have a guest next time too. I wonder why all of these people are free. Yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine. Really can't. But we're very grateful for having a captive audience in Duncan. Thank you so much for being with us again. Thanks for having me on, guys. This was super fun. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're our second guest that has ever returned, so thank you. Yeah. Please have me back. I need uh, more friends who like to talk about movies. Definitely. Yeah. Listeners, I bid you adieu. <laughs> thank you for tuning in. I love you. Until next time. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> Hey, Blimpo, too many Twinkies. I'm going. Uh.